Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Jamie Lara, Associate Professor of Christian Art and Architecture at Yale, spoke at the Institute of Sacred Music as part of the Liturgy Symposium series on November 5, 2007. His presentation is entitled, Rehabilitating Human Sacrifice in a Christian Context. This paper is about worship, the worship that the early Catholic missionaries to colonial Mexico imported, imposed, and reinvented with the cooperation and even impetus of the native populations, principally the Aztecs. Also known as the Mexica, the term they used for themselves, these Mesoamerican people of the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries inhabited the central plateau around Lake Texcoco, but without the airport, um, then you see there, uh, the site of present-day Mexico City. As speakers of the Nahuatl language, they also carry the name Nahuas, and it was their tongue that the mendicant missionaries, the Franciscans, Dominicans, and Augustinians adopted as the lingua franca of the evangelization. The friars not only adopted the Aztec language for texts, but they also adopted and adapted selected signs, symbols, metaphors, and religious practices of the people they came to convert. This process of critical adaptation to the ethos of a people was called accommodatio, accommodation, in the colonial period, and more recently, inculturation, contextualization, indigenization, but something that goes back to the first centuries of the Christian era. Douglas Hayward identifies three conditions for a successful inculturation of the Christian, Christian message. First, the manner of communicating the gospel must reflect the communication styles or forms appropriate to the recipient culture. The language and imagery of the gospel must reflect those of the recipient culture, particularly picture language. And the content of the gospel must be such that it addresses the needs and concerns of the people of the recipient culture. Christianity has always been indebted for some of its ritual and formal aspects to the religious language, visual and verbal, of the pagans to whom the gospel message was addressed. And the same can be said of the 16th century in Mexico. In many ways, the conversion of Mesoamerica paralleled that of the ancient Roman Empire, not the least of which was the fact that both occurred during times of pandemics and contagious diseases. It also paralleled the conversion of the barbarian Saxons in the 8th century by Charlemagne and his missionary monks. <laughs> that missionary enterprise produced what was perhaps the greatest attempt at inculturation in the first millennium, the Hiliand, a paraphrase of the four Gospels, not only in the Saxon language, but with all the colorful metaphors of a macho warrior culture, with parallels between Christ and Wotan, and the spirit worlds of forests, sacred groves, forts, clans, chieftains, and thanes. In the Americas of the mid-16th century, the exercise of enculturation was the product of a selective 
adoption and remodeling of Christian ways resulting in what I call Nawa Christianity. Early Nawa Christian texts, for example, commonly employ the word teotl for the Christian deus or dios, but more surprisingly, the, de- the texts also employ epithets belonging to individual Aztec deities and apply them to the Christian trinity. He by whom one lives, possessor of the near, possessor of the surrounding, and possessor of heaven, possessor of earth. These epithets imply universality, omnipotence, and human dependence, and thus were easily applied to the new deity of the missionaries. Such a process of selective recycling was a planned and deliberate search for cultural compatibility to create an indigenous Christianity. And although done under the political hegemony of the European invaders and the religious hegemony of the Christian clergy, it is obvious that many of the Amerindians became proactive partners in the evangelization. In large measure, this indigenous or Nahua Christianity was accomplished on the level of the religious imagination, both verbal and visual. Liturgy, whether Aztec or Christian, uses the language of metaphor and the imagination. But metaphors are also the most difficult elements of a cultural system to translate. Hence, better to adopt the metaphors of the recipient culture. By applying the rich root metaphors of the Amerindian world, including sunlight, the human heart, and human blood, to Christ crucified, the missionaries hoped not only to convince their new flock of the truth of the Christian story, but also to instill in them what Aidan Kavanaugh, former professor of um, the ISM and the Divinity School, calls right worship, orthodoxia, with its corresponding right living. In other words, a holistic Christian orthodoxy. In this project, they found willing informers, interpreters, scribes, translators, liturgical assistants among the native scholar elite, some of whom had formerly been Aztec priests. They were the most literate ones. We might say that in the more liberal and experimental late medieval and pre-Tridentine period, which is what the discovery of America was, the, the missionaries were instinctively operating out of two unspoken principles, ritual substitution and dynamic equivalence. The first principle, ritual substitution, refers to removal and replacement, or what I have called recycling in the case of Mexico. It can be traced back to Pope Gregory the Great, and here on the, uh, you have the slide of his um, order to Augustine of Canterbury, when Augustine was sent to the pagan English, uh, instructing him not to destroy the temples, the pagan temples, but to baptize them and to reincorporate animal sacrifices as what we might call Christian picnics. Picnics. 
I use, as I use the term here, ritual substitution was a means of avoiding a ceremonial vacuum caused by the demolition of the Aztec pyramid temples, which were useless for Christian worship, and the suppression of their cults. Conjointly, a creative assimilation of select material components of the recipient culture enriched the liturgical order of worship, principally in Mexico, feathers, costumes, musical instruments, rhythms, etc. In my opinion, the liturgical aspects of the evangelization were the most palpable and probably the most successful part of the missionary enterprise. Feathers, for example. In pre-conquest day, feathered headgear and vesture had been the exclusive possession of the gods, the nobility, and heroic warriors. It was the supreme sign of honor and distinction. It was not just decoration. Feathers were also associated with sacrificial victims. As bird-like messengers to the god, these victims um, had their heads decorated with feather down as they were sacrificed. Later, under the tutelage of the friars, feather artists created Christian crosses, mosaic panels, and even bishops' mitres uh, in colorful feathers, using especially those of the divine Quetzal bird, and even in gilded feathers, thus transferring notions of divinity, royalty, and even sacrifice to the Christian images. Later, outdoor crosses display plumed terminations on the crossbeam and the headpiece, according them the same signs of distinction and regal honor. Once again, this is not just decoration, but would carry a wealth of connotations that you and I perhaps would miss. The second principle of enculturation, dynamic equivalence, refers to language and the translations of texts in an attempt at a nuanced rendering to capture the meaning of the original in equivalent forms of the receiver language. Early in Mexico, the evangelized realized that they could not translate word for word into Nahuatl because such translations either made no sense or had no impact on their hearers. This is evident in the fact that upon his arrival in Mexico in 1524, the Franciscan Andres de Olmos immediately set to work on compiling a list of metaphors and figures of speech that the old ones, that is the ancient priests uh, and elite, had been using. Thus, dynamic equivalence aims to transmit the message of the original text to the recipient by using comparable linguistic components. It's especially successful if it is rich picture language. For example, the Aztec neophytes apparently had difficulty understanding the biblical concept of the son of man as found in the book of Daniel and the Ezekiels. So the Franciscan Bernardino de Sahagún and his elite, his native scribes, replaced the expression son of man with the phrase son of the virgin, making it overtly Christological. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of the virgin, 
and drink his blood, you cannot have life in you. Made the act of receiving Christ's sacramental body even more carnal, and for this audience, even more cannibalistic. Or again, to clarify the meaning of the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, the translators rendered it, forgive us our trespasses only after we have forgiven others. A significant change of meaning, in my opinion. In Mexico, comparisons to feathers, jewelry, tortillas, and even to the ancient gods themselves made the impact of Christianity tangible, colorful, and gave it, so to speak, a Mexica taste. In fact, taste might be a very apt metaphor, especially for you who have eaten eyeballs and other things back there, um, because Aztec theology was deeply imbued with a sense of human existence as a cycle of foodstuffs. We are food, feeding the gods, the cosmos, and returning to feed us human beings. This concept, so strange to us Westerners, was later to season the Nahuatl's taste for Jesus Christ. The Indians of old had in their procession the whole Bible written in pictures and in hieroglyphs. With the passage of time, they garbled them, applied the stories of scriptures to themselves, and so set their own religion and history on its head. What was the religion of the ancient Mexicans, after all, but a Christianity confused by the passage of time and the uh, equivocal nature of their hieroglyphs? I have made a thorough study of their mythology, and in essence it amounts to God, Jesus Christ, his mother, etc. Since the Spaniards did not recognize Christianity when expressed in a different language and liturgy, and since enormous abuses had been introduced into their liturgy, they set out to destroy the very same religion they professed. Well, no one today holds to the naivete of this 19th century Dominican in believing that the Aztec religion was a wayward form of Judeo-Christianity. It was not so far-fetched an idea for the 16th century friars. One common belief, as this map shows, was that the New World Indians were the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, who wound up in the Americas and whose legitimate animal sacrifices were perverted there by Satan, transforming them into human sacrifices. The Franciscans in particular were quick to observe those similarities between Catholicism and native religious expression. In the initial and optimistic period of evangelization, such coincidences were believed to be part of a remote plan of divine providence to prepare the Indians for Orthodox Catholicism. These practices also confused the friars, raising in their minds the possibility of an earlier missionary campaign and subsequent demonic perversion, but they opened up points of mutual association as well for missionaries and Nawaz alike. The Aztecs were an extremely religious people, totally immersed in a sacred cosmos. 
They were pious polytheists whose animistic religion included a pantheon composed of a bewildering number of male and female deities, some of whom bore superficial affinities to the Christian God, Christ, and the saints. These polymorphous gods not only personified earth, wind, water, lightning, fertility, death, but those forces were the gods themselves. Indeed, for the Aztecs who lacked a notion of the profane, the cosmos was alive and imbued with divine energies. Devotees encountered those energies in the use of psychotropic drugs, in the intoxication of pulque beer, you know, corona, <laughs> in aesthetic uh, dancing, but above all in liturgy, ritual performance. This transmutable vitality could be found in all of matter which was living and active, constantly feeding other living matter in the cosmos and needing to be fed. The Aztecs understood that while they ate the fruits of the earth, they in turn were consumed as first fruits by the same landscape and its deities who ate them. The cosmos, with its sacred energies, was an edible reality, but humans were also the foodstuffs of the the sacred uh, landscape. Reciprocity was the operative principle as debt payment for vitality, and the necessary violent consequence was human sacrifice. Debt payment was a commonly used metaphor for sacrificial offering. In the pre-conquest period, it was possible for a deputy victim to be sacrificed in one's stead. For example, a person who survived a serious illness used to sacrifice a slave or even their own child to pay the debt payment. In this way, they paid for the death that they avoided. And when, for example, a slave personifying the patroness of weavers was killed, all the women of the corporation, the weaving corporation, died somehow through the victim, provided that each had contributed to her purchase and had assimilated themselves to her by their penitential behavior of fasting, dancing, and self-bleeding. In Mexica belief... One could die for the many, or as we read in the Vulgate Bible, ut unus moriatur homo pro multus. But debts could also be redeemed by divine sacrifices. By such payments, the gods gave their lives and their liquids, their sacred liquids, to men and women as food and drink. And humans, in turn, offered their lives and their liquids to the gods as sustenance. To borrow a line from Aidan Kavanaugh, we might say that blood was the elixir poured out, quote, for the life of the world. The Aztecs believed that the, that the heart they were tearing out of the bodies of warriors was a sacrificed substance, the flesh of the gods, or metaphorically put, a nopal, a precious eagle cactus fruit. This corresponded to the fact that the human actor 
when he or she performed a liturgical action and was sacrificed, very often willingly, became a teotl epistla, the icon of the god. These human beings encapsulated or incarnated the deity. This was heightened by their regal treatment as divinities, by precious green jade jewelry that they wore, reminiscent of the green earth, and by their elaborate costumes that included corn, corn tassels, or feathered headbands made to imitate those corn tassels. Mesoamerican peoples often considered human beings to be another form of corn or flowers. We are born to die, to become sustenance in sacrifice and ritual cannibalism, and, but we also contain within ourselves the seeds of regeneration. Such would be the Aztec credo. Corn, that most common of foods, was also a god in their pantheon and a figure of speech for sacrificial eating. As nourishment for human being, corn was the symbolic substance for all living entities. In human sacrifices, people became metaphoric corn tortillas for other beings. In fact, human beings were born in corn. In the womb, a baby was understood to be surrounded by corn gruel. Human life was cooked into existence like bread in the oven. Thus, at some point in the biological cycle of life, one was either eating or being eaten. As one author put it, Aztec life was based on an interactive reality that food promoted in the relationship between life and death. Food was the vehicle of transubstantiation from one reality to another and therefore was an appropriate ritual articulation of transition between realms of being. Or as my colleague at Harvard University, David Carrasco, puts it, the gods eat us and we eat the gods. Human beings are twice transubstantiated, once into proxies of the divine, and a second time into a meal for gods and other human beings. Theophagia, the ritualized eating of a god, thus becomes a divine anthropophagia, cannibalism. Catholic Christians, of course, had their own theology of of uh, transformation and anthropophagic sacrifice, a theology that Aidan Kavanaugh expressed in his book on liturgical theology. In fact, I'm quite sure that the Aztecs would have loved Aidan Kavanaugh. They would have eaten him up. (laughs) He had a unique way of expressing the meaning of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Genesis says that we began in a swamp teeming with life, but that something went vastly wrong one evening at dinner. Apocalypse says that the difficulty was finally resolved into something called the banquet of the Lamb. Hebrews tells us how the resolution was accomplished, not in an orchard set in a pleasant countryside, but in a butcher's shop located at the city's center. The world's story from beginning to end pivots upon this resolution— a resolution the faint of heart, the fastidious, and the squeamish find hard to bear. Suburbia prefers its meat wrapped in plastic, 
all signs of violence removed so as to reduce the necessity of entering into the dark and murderous transaction with reality which one creature's giving up its life for another entails. To slay rightly is to transact the inexorable business of life. So let us look at how this played out in the culture contact and in the liturgy evangelization of 16th century Mexico. Before the culture contact, the Aztecs had a sort of pre-Christian ritual of baptism and even circumcision. This sacrament, in quotation marks, consisted of a ritual bathing of the infant in a river or fountain or tub soon after birth, and usually at sunrise, at which time the child was named. The purpose of the rite was for the child to be born a second time. According to the early chronicles, the midwife offered the baby at four days to the waters as a type of oblation. At that moment, an animistic entity associated with the breath of the gods, the wind, entered into the child's body. This breathing in, a type of insufflation, to use a Christian term, took place in the offering to the water. The action was purificatory, but not in the moral sense of removing original sin. It would expel bad influences from the newborn's body and cleanse the animistic centers of the heart, the head, and the liver through water before inviting in those entities that were required for human vitality. A second naming ceremony took place in the springtime when babies born during the previous year were brought to the great temple in Tenochtitlan. There, the priest, the native priest, made a small incision in the earlobes with a knife and in the penis if they were male. A fire was then built over which the temple priest briefly held the baby and symbolically roasted the baby like popcorn, as if the baby were future food for the cosmos. Through these ceremonies, the baby became fully human. Therefore, these pre-Christian rites had implicit correlation to God-parenting, priestly activity, purification, dedication, and even eating corn. To the eyes of a naive European, like ourselves, water, fire, breath, bread looked ever so much like a parody of similar elements of Catholic initiation sacraments. Conversely, seen from below, from the point of view of the Aztecs, our sacrament of baptism would probably have appeared as a less dramatic imitation of long-established religious traditions. It should come to you as no surprise that the Aztecs also had a practice of ritual eating that was misunderstood as a parody of Christian communion. The Aztecs practiced communion under two forms. One, ritual cannibalism, in which small pieces of a ritual victim were ingested, and a second, in which a deity impersonator made out of dough, corn dough, a sort of corn gingerbread man, uh, was eaten. 
In regard to ritual cannibalism, the human victims were the game trophies won in flower wars that the Aztecs waged against their neighboring tribes. In their understanding, a prisoner was captured by the grace of a god or goddess and so belonged to that divinity. The captive was not thought to be an enemy as much as a food stuff, specifically corn that needed to be harvested, not in the fields, but in the ritual centers of rival cities. The most important capturing of human beings took place um, for the Feast of the Flaying of Men during the month of March. By his death, a captive also became a comestible messenger to the gods and so attained a level of honor and divinity. The captive was momentarily transubstantiated into an icon, Teotl Epishla, of the god. During the ritual, the victim's heart was extract, extracted and placed in a kwashikali, meaning an eagle bowl, from which it was understood to be transported by a solar eagle to the heavens. By the way, Gregory the Great uses the word solar eagle for Jesus Christ. If, if, if you haven't eaten too much, here's the description. Uh, thereupon, they stretched them one at a time down on the sacrificial stone. Then they delivered them into the hands of priests who threw them back on their backs and cut open their breasts with a wide-bladed flint knife. And they named the hearts of the captives precious eagle cactus fruit. They lifted the hearts up to the solar deity, the turquoise prince, the soaring eagle. They offered the heart to the sun. They nourished him with it. And when they had been offered, they placed the heart in the kwashikali. And these captives who had, uh, who had died, they also called eagle men or eagle women. After the sacrifice, the body was rolled down the steps, uh, dissected, cooked, and communicated. Some sacrifices also took the form of a holocaust offering in fire. Not completely different from the holocaust offerings of the Jews in the temple. Another communion day was held in springtime. After the blood of the victims had been smeared on the doorposts of the temple and the chambers of the gods, it was sprinkled on a corn dough man who represented the flesh and bones of the god. In a seeming foreshadowing of the Catholic feast of Corpus Christi, this impersonator in bread called tzitzoli was vested in precious robes and carried around in procession. The gingerbread man was then cut into pieces, distributed, and eaten. It was held in great reverence and awe, and, like viaticum, was even carried to the sick. Thus we see that the notion of eating human flesh, or the flesh of a god-man under the guise of corn, was neither new nor, if you'll excuse the pun, distasteful to the Aztecs. Both were teolacuali, the divine food, the food of God. What's most intriguing to me is that the Franciscan liturgical scholar, Bernardino de Sahagun, recycled that very same Aztec word, teolacuali, 
with all its sacrificial and bloody connotations for the Christian Eucharist in his Nahuatl hymnal book called the Salmodia Christiana. It was a hymnal book made to be sung and danced to at the same time. Mother Church, you alone are, guardian, are the guardian of the sacred food, Teolacuali, the holiest of sacraments that your guardian, that your chieftain, Jesus Christ, has kept for you. With sacred food, our Lord Jesus Christ made tortillas and wine, his body and blood, the richest, the riches of the soul. Lest you think that all of this is too gory, I would remind you that by the late Middle Ages, blood was not only revered in Europe, but the bloodbath from an exsanguinated Christ had moved to the very center of European Christian piety. Devotional art and poetry was awash in blood. Blood erupted in iconography and vision as well, frequently that of the man of sorrows. Medieval mystics, in particular, made overt use of blood imbibing in the language of Christian cannibalism. Around 1060, the reforming monk Peter Damien had a vision of Christ pierced with nails hanging on the cross, and he wrote that, quote, with my mouth, I eagerly, eagerly tried to catch every dripping drop of his blood, end quote. But most of the visionaries, the medieval visionaries, were women who had come under the sway of the mendicant friars and their piety. Colette of Corby, a 15th century Franciscan tertiary to whom Christ appeared as chopped meat on a platter, was warned, warned in a vision that, quote, the offense, offenses that people do against Jesus tear him into smaller pieces than the flesh cut up on this plate before me, end quote. Catherine of Siena, the Dominican uh, tertiary, articulated the emergent piety in a way reminiscent of the Aztec communion figures made out of dough, quote, there is no way our appetite can be satisfied except with Christ's blood. Only the blood can satisfy our hunger because the blood has been mixed and kneaded with the dough of the eternal Godhead, a nature infinitely greater than we, End quote. In their ecstasies, mystics imbibed blood from the wound in Christ's side, and they savored him in a Christian cannibalism. Caroline Walker Bynum says, quote, Women ate and became a god who was food and flesh, and in eating a god whose body was meat and drink, women both transfigured and became more fully the flesh and the food that their own bodies were, end quote. Now, you may complain that I am using the word cannibalism in an equivocal manner, but anthropologists are quick to point out that cannibalism is always symbolic, even when it is real. It never has just to do with eating, but is primarily a, me a medium for the maintenance, regeneration, and foundation of social order related to notions of union, 
the acquisition of the deceased's prowess, the release of a soul, etc. I ask, were these topics and images that the friars avoided in their catechesis so as not to remind the Mesoamericans of their bloody past practices? And it seems to me that the answer is no. In Christian Europe, the great welling up of blood piety was manifested in great altarpieces, sculptures, prayer cards, and pamphlets. The image of the man of sorrows demanded some response from the devout believer, often in forms of self-inflicted pain. In Holy Week rituals, Christ figures were often outfitted with bladders of animal blood that could be punctured at appropriate moments to display Jesus bleeding before the faithful. This liturgical theater passed to the New World with the missionary friars. Let me return to the topic of, of Holy Communion. Early in the evangelization process, there were questions about the Indians' readiness to receive Holy Communion. Some missionaries were of the opinion that they could not be admitted to the communion table because they were too recently converted. Others thought it was impossible to make a general decision and that it was reasonable to, be, to give communion to those who asked for it. Uh, this was thought especially true when they had been confessing for several years and were able to distinguish between an unconsecrated tortilla, tlaxcali, and a consecrated tortilla, godly tortali, teotlaxcali. So, the sacred tortilla. The earliest reference to the Eucharistic bread is the use of the words itzaktlaxcalinsi, meaning white, little white tortilla, which, of course, is an accurate description of how the communion wafer would have appeared to the neophytes. A sermon of 1559 uses the term while at the same time assuring the faithful that it's something different than bread. When, quote, when during Mass it is said, indeed he is the true God, although it appears to you as a little white tortilla, indeed it is not a tortilla, indeed it is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. It would be a mistake for us to think that the word tortilla was used merely because it was the Mesoamerican equivalent of wheat bread. Corn, as we saw, was also a god in their pantheon, a figure of speech for sacrificial eating. In fact, the very act of making and kneading the dough, flattening it out, spreading it out, was also the meaning of the word to sacrifice a human being. Therefore, the use of the word tortilla in the Nahuatl version of the Lord's Prayer, for example, give us this day our daily tortilla, resonated with Nahuatl Christians, especially with women who were the tortilla makers. It must be reminded, uh, we must remember that not only eating tortillas, but also making tortillas um, was um, an act of uh, cosmic uh, maintenance. In a Christian context, a human being once and for all, one human being once and for all, could be spread out in sacrifice like tortilla dough and so become ritual food for the life of the world. This is the, uh, the image from the cover of my new book. 
um, and it re- uh, registers an occurrence of the year 1547, the installation of a tabernacle in the Church of San Francisco, Mexico City. Surrounding the Eucharistic tortilla is a bonnet of divine quetzal feathers that is more than just decorative. Blue-green quetzal plumes imitated the efflorescence of the corn plant. Hence, the sacred corn deity is once again um, uh, intimated here. With its plumes, the bonnet accords regal honors to the Christian tortilla, another way in which the Christian food was recast as the natives' daily bread. But as we saw, feathers could also connote sacrificial victims. Christian artists also created crucifixes whose bodies were in corpus was made of corn. The framework for the body of Christ here was a bundle of corn husks covered, tied together and roughly covered with a mixture of corn pith paste. After the figure was dry, a fine coat of paste was spread over it and modeled to bring out the rib system, the facial features, etc., the profuse blood was simulated by a compound of cochineal, which is a red liquid produced by insects that fed on the eagle cactus fruit, the sacred fruit. All of the ingredients were not only technically successful, but also carried religious associations. In a very Hebrew way, Hebraic way, maize or corn had been one of the principal first fruits offered in the temples, part of the sacrifices to uh, the divine mouth of the deities. A wonderful visualization of the Eucharist is found in a pictographic version of the Our Father. In the second register on the left uh, here, a friar holds out the Eucharistic tortilla to the faithful. In his left hand, he holds a stack of tortilla hosts that he has taken down, taken from the stepped altar further to the right, which is labeled Momoshli. The fact that this altar here, you see the Momoshli there, um, has all the appearances of an outdoor cross on its base is significant because it demonstrates that the actual word here, which means altar of human sacrifice, has been recycled both for the Christian cross on its podium and for the Eucharistic table. Further to the right of the Mamoshli, two Nawa Christians eat their daily bread here. By an ingenious use of pictures and wordplay, the phrase in the Lord's Prayer has been made to refer both to the Eucharistic host and to the daily bread eaten in the Nawa home, both of which are tlashkali tortillas. Notions of human sacrifice appear on Christian crosses as well. At Cuernavaca, the cross is embedded in an ancient kwashikali, the stone box used to hold the sacrificed human victims or human hearts. The base of the cross, called Mamoshli, even today, with its altar, um, um, with its four corner spikes, looks like the Jewish altar of Holocaust that once uh, existed in the Temple of Jerusalem and that would have been known through illustrated Bibles. At Nonoalco, the cross rises out of a stylized barrel cactus that is more than just decorative. 
In days of old, human victims were impaled on the spikes of a barrel cactus before having their hearts, their chests open and hearts extracted. In addition to the barrel cactus, the cross here has been carved with a heart at the crossing, uh, which is framed by a crown of thorns. Moreover, it has been erected on a platform that is a true altar, a liturgical altar with a cutout in the tabletop for an altar stone, allowing mass to be celebrated there. Once again, we see that the new Christian sacrifice of the cross modified and superseded the former human sacrifices, even while it continues some of their metaphors. The Augustan friar Juan de Mijangos dealt with this new uh, sacramental economy of human sacrifice in a Nawa devotional work, which we translated as the Divine Mirror. After discussing the sacrificial practices of our grandfathers and grandmothers in the ancient times, he turns to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and reemploys Aztec metaphors um, uh, regarding corn. Quote, first know that how today in our time we spread out, we roll out, we make an offering of our Lord God to our Lord God, of the honored body and precious blood of his beloved child, Jesus Christ. We do this at Mass. It is as if though we appease, we calm our deity, our ruler, if he is angry with us because of our sins. Because at Mass is remembered how for our sake Christ was crucified, how he was meant to suffer burning pain because of our sins, our faults, are great and abominable sins. So we note here the Mexica vocabulary of, to, of spreading out the corn dough and the implied roasting on fire as food or holocaust. And now to summarize and end. The missionaries to Mexico were confronted with a predicament. Being thoroughly Catholic pastors and theologians, they had to preach and teach the passion the right slaying of Jesus Christ. There was no way that they could avoid addressing the topic of the voluntary sacrifice of a human being whose broken body and spilled blood were the very core of the message of redemption. Nor could they dilute the doctrine that this body and blood could now be ingested in ways that were not wholly different from Mexica practices of old. The emphasis on the sacrifice of the Mass as a representation of Calvary, albeit unbloody, was particularly acute in the 16th century when Protestant reformers were denying the sacrificial aspects of the Eucharist and when the Council of Trent was insisting on it as dogma. It is clear that the friars wanted to condemn the rites, the ancient rites of human sacrifice and ritual cannibalism. But I submit the mendicant missionaries also needed to build upon the indigenous notions of sacrifice as a manifestation of an archetypal blood debt payment, as the restoration of balance between God and humankind as an, and as an act of feeding. They needed to rehabilitate them all in orthodox ways, both as correct doctrine and especially as right worship, transacting the inexorable business of life, as Aidan Kavanaugh would say, in which Jesus Christ plays the part of the deputy victim, 
the edible icon of God and the sacred tortilla of a once and for all human sacrifice. Thank you.